Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that overuses M-dashes, and we are not sorry about it. Today, we have Julia, Bianca, Zoe, Laura, and Kellen. And this week, we're talking about radical language, language that works in some way against capitalism, sexism, or just the status quo generally. So for the first half, we're going to talk about some entire languages and dialects that have developed in resistance to oppression. And then we're going to get into some of the modern debates about language happening on the left today. So get ready for some scalding hot takes. You might just get burnt. Um, I wanted to start out just by talking a little bit about why language matters in the context of socialist feminism. The words that we use and the way we say things can change people's minds and convince them of things. They can make certain people feel alienated or excluded from what we're saying, or they can make people feel included and called into what we're saying. Um, And all of that matters on a personal level. The language that we use with each other impacts our relationships, obviously, and can change the way that we think about ourselves, too. Um, But this idea also matters on a broader political level when we're thinking about how to get people involved with an organizing project or who will feel like a certain space or certain services are for them. Uh, One example that I think comes up a lot is the push to not call reproductive services women's health and to use more inclusive terms like people with uteruses or pregnant people to describe who a given set of services are for. Um, And I think sometimes people push back against these types of language changes because they don't like that the terminology is changing or they view it as something that ultimately doesn't matter and is just sort of like an aesthetic choice that is politically unimportant. Um, Sometimes this includes some people on the left um, who I think don't think that we should be as worried about language. But as I hope to get into more in this episode, I think that these types of language changes can have real impacts. Um, Ultimately, my main thought about this is that if you are one of those people who thinks these types of changes don't matter and aren't something we should be putting our energy towards as leftists, then you shouldn't really be spending all of your energy opposing them. You could just not worry about it and do the work (laughs) that you actually think is important. Just a tip. But as I hope to get into more in this episode, I really do believe that language choices can have real political consequences and can change people's lives in real ways. So I'm excited for us to talk more about that. Yeah, for sure. And I I should say, you know, in the interest of full disclosure, that I am currently writing a dissertation that is based on the premise that language and politics are in a dialectical relationship, which is to say that politics shapes the language that we use and that our language in turn shapes our politics. So like my hot take here is that it's just a historical fact that words matter. Um, Language changes our understanding of the world, the way that we move through it, and the possibilities that we see for the future. The way that we talk about things is actually really important. And I'm not just saying that in like a language police kind of way, but coming from like a real materialist Marxist position. Helen, I told, I mentioned your dissertation to my family over Thanksgiving, and they're all really excited to read it. So they wanted you to know. (laughs) Yay! I love that. (laughs) It like a similar topic came up, and I was like, that's what Helen's writing about. And they were like, when when do we get to read it? Wow. (laughs) That's so cute. I also did not, yeah, I didn't know that that's what your dissertation was about. And I'm also so excited to read it now. Like, that's Mm -hmm. amazing. And I'm glad I'm not the only like weird person obsessed with language. Like, I I love Mm -hmm. that we're all like getting into these topics. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess not surprisingly, um, because another example I wanted to talk about right up front is the classic season of the bitch linguistic choice, No Sorry. Um, So I think... Um, some people want to talk a little bit more about what no sorry means to you and why why do we do that yeah um I can start but other people please add but I had a conversation about this recently with a friend of mine who was like I don't think that like we should tell people not to apologize I think it's that like men should apologize more um of course based on the idea that like women and people raised in a feminized way like over apologize um which I was like, yes, men should learn how to apologize more. But also, um, you know, people are like, 
socialized to apologize for everything and I think for me it's about knowing like when to apologize obviously if you like do something hurtful to someone else you should apologize Mm -hmm. personally as a Sag I've rarely been wrong but when I am I feel that I'm good at apologizing (laughs) for it and recognizing that it's just a rarity um but it's also like not apologizing for just like being a human and like having needs or like making harmless mistakes and like things like that Mm -hmm. yeah um yeah exactly what zoe was saying no sorry came out of this understanding that cis men don't apologize automatically and continuously like people of marginalized genders often do um when i was an educator i had a high school student once who would literally apologize if i like walked past her because she thought she might be in the way um And it's kind of this really diminishing of self and making yourself even smaller. Um, I still sometimes needlessly catch myself saying, um, or I catch myself needlessly saying I'm sorry, but I've definitely gotten better at that. And like Zoe was saying, the idea is people say sorry for no reason. Uh, Generally, if you you are someone who isn't a cis man, um, yes. This compulsive, entrenched, and systemic idea that people of marginalized genders are are so conditioned to feel bad for taking up space. Um, And it's just important to remember that we deserve to be here. We deserve to not feel guilt, shame, and sorrow for literally meaningless things and for just taking up space in this world. Yeah, that's so true. Um, I also feel like I have gotten better since like joining the podcast of just noticing when I over apologize. Same. Yeah, I've really appreciated it. Um, All right. So I wanted us to spend some time talking about some kind of historical examples of radical language or just like full languages that have used some of these ideas. Um, There's a lot to talk about in this area. So I just wanted to like note that there's a lot that we're probably going to miss here. We don't have unlimited time, but I just hope that these can be like a few examples of how language itself can really be a tool of survival and fighting back against oppression. Um, So the first example I wanted to talk about is called Nushu. This is a language that was used most widely in the 1700s and 1800s in Hunan in southern China. And it's a language that was created and used exclusively by women. So from what I've read, it seems like back when Nushu was created, higher class women could sometimes gain education and learn to read and write. But it was very uncommon for poor women to be able to read and write. So this was an alternative written language that was created by working class women that was passed down by older women to their daughters um, and other like younger girls in their family. So from one account I read, basically it was like when two young girls were especially close, they would do this sort of ceremony called the bond of sworn sisters, which sounds like an early version of like BFFs essentially. Um, Maybe a little more queer, but hard to say. Um, And then one of their mothers or aunts would teach them how to write Nushu. And so it was used by women to keep in touch with like childhood friends, even after they generally had to move in with like their husband's family as they got older, which could be far away. And they might have to leave their friends and female family that they grew up with. Um, It was also just used to write down like personal accounts of their own lives, kind of like diaries and things like that and to express emotions that couldn't necessarily be shared publicly, especially fears and like sadness around having to get married. Um, One of the primary researchers who's translated a lot of works written in Nushu, Professor Li Ming, has said the language represents, quote, a culture of sunshine which allows women to speak up with their own voices and to fight against male chauvinism, unquote. I just think that's so beautiful. Yeah, I just love it's like it just sounds like a perfect language, honestly. I love it. Um yeah, I love sadly that. it's not like used much anymore, but there are still some people who know how to write new shoe, which is really cool. Um so another one that I wanted to talk about is called Bengime. So Bengime is a language that's still spoken today in parts of central Mali. It's unclear exactly when it developed, but based on the oral tradition of the folks who speak it, it was sometime during the Atlantic slave trade. 
So this part of Mali where it developed was along a common route for slave traders to travel through. Um, Mali isn't coastal, but it's pretty near the western coast of Africa. So this would be like one of the last parts of the journey after traders had kidnapped people potentially further from the coast and then were making their way back to the coast to take enslaved people to the Americas. Um, but this area also turned out to be kind of a good hiding spot. So many people escaped from slave traders in this area of Mali, and they were able to hide in caves and other kind of like natural geological hiding places. Um, and also there were some folks in this area who had means who would sort of help hide people. So sort of like similar to the Underground Railroad almost, they would like take in people who were escaping. Um, so this community developed of people who most likely didn't originally speak the same languages because they were from all different parts of Africa. And they created this language, Bangime, to be secret. So Bangime roughly translates as secret language or hidden language. And this helped people hide from slave traders in their own community in this area because they weren't speaking the same language. And also it just helped to create this really like close-knit community of folks who probably wouldn't all have been able to communicate otherwise, um, but they were able to communicate once they had this shared language that everyone was using. Um, and I think that this is like similar in some ways, has some similar themes to ways that folks used language once they were brought to the Americas um, as enslaved people as well, um, which I think Helen wanted to talk a little bit more about. Yeah, definitely. So I think it's important to know, and Julia, what you were saying kind of um, hinted at this, that language was used in really oppressive ways in the slave trade. So um, trade, slave traders and then enslavers would frequently try to separate people who came from similar communities, both in you know vessels, trading vessels as they crossed the ocean, and then also once they got to the Americas, because um, you know, African people who were caught up in the slave trade were from really diverse places. They had so many different right. languages. And if people spoke the same language, especially in like the early days of enslavement, um, before everybody, you know, when you first get from Africa, I'm talking about like first generation enslaved people, um, that creates the opportunity for um, resistance. And so language was used as a weapon um, in terms of keeping people from speaking to each other in languages and African languages that enslavers couldn't understand. As time progresses, you know, people who are in, and I think we're going to see this time and time again, whether we're talking about, you know, uh, 18th century China, whether we're talking about modern day America, that like people who are oppressed find ways to communicate with one another in ways that oppressors don't understand. Mm -hmm. And that was very much something that happened in um, the slave South. So um, enslaved people had different sort of secret languages, coded ways of talking to convey information without alerting white people to what they were actually saying. Um, so throughout the South, by the antebellum period, it was illegal for enslaved people to learn how to read and write. Um, so it was hard, you know, for people to, for example, send each other letters. Um, and obviously speaking out loud about things like escape plans or even just like religious ceremonies that weren't led by white people could be really dangerous. So they developed ways to share info amongst themselves on individual farms or with people who lived on other plantations as well. One of those ways was through singing certain spirituals. It was really common for enslaved people to sing while they worked, partly as a way to pass the time, partly as a way to entertain themselves through what was often really monotonous work, partly as a way to like build community and keep spirits up. Um, but some spirituals had specific encoded meanings. So like some of the songs were just ways to complain about enslavers. For example, like biblical songs about the oppression of the pharaohs could take on new meaning. Um, you could sing about uh, how terrible the person who was forcing you to work was, but if you just substituted a pharaoh's name for an enslaver's name, then you could get away with it potentially as an example. Um, and some of those songs are still around today. Another example of a song is called Follow the Drinking Gourd, which was a song that people think might actually have been about the Big Dipper constellation, which points toward the North Star. So that titular line, Follow the Drinking Star, is really an instruction for how to find, or sorry, follow the drinking gourd um, is really an instruction for how to find and then like go northwards if you're sneaking away at night. 
Um, and some historians also believe that enslaved people communicated freedom strategies in other ways through arts. So for example, like weaving quilts um, was uh, like sort of both a hobby and a survival skill. And there were ways to weave in patterns or maps or that sort of thing that you could pass down to other people and you know convey information in a way that wasn't quite written, but was still material. And so there were lots of different sort of freedom strategies, um, strategies for resistance that you see springing up that are different forms of language um, among enslaved people in the 19th century in the United States. Yeah, that's so cool. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I think so a kind of related example of like a group, a marginalized group within sort of the dominant culture creating their own code um, is this language called Polari. Um, so this was mostly used in Britain from about the 1800s to mid 1900s. And this developed in queer subcultures, and it was also commonly used by circus performers and other sort of marginalized forms of work to evade undercover police back when being gay was illegal in Britain. Um, but it also became a pretty built out language. So like they had a counting system and lots of other words that had nothing to do with being queer. It was also just like part of being in this marginalized community at the time. Um, and we don't have time to fully get into this here, but I think this also shares a lot of similarities with ballroom culture in the US and the slang used primarily by Black and Latino trans and queer people to avoid being criminalized around some of the same period of time. Um, I just wanted to briefly share some Polari words because I think a lot of them will be familiar to a lot of our listeners. Yes. Um, so a butch was a masculine woman and a camp was an effeminate man. So these also made their way to queer communities in the U.S. The Very idea of, yeah, my, you might have heard of them. <laughs> I don't know. Um, like <laughs> things, things being campy like that almost definitely came from this usage of camp. Um, okay, also, I love this one. I just wanted to share this. So people you wanted to sleep with were sometimes called TBH, which stands for to be had, yes. which I just think is like so cool and sexy. Like it's very, I don't know, like mysterious. <laughs> um, and They're to be had because it's also like confidence. It's not like, right, will right. I, won't I? I mean, right. a predatory version of right. that, but yeah. we're going to keep it. A consensual version where it's like you're just right. Like, I like the consensual version where it's like you know it's like someone. I feel like it's someone like to be pursued, right? Yeah. Like you're like I'm gonna. They're they probably want to sleep with me too, and like this. I feel like mm. this is gonna happen. Yeah. Um. To be had. Yeah. Um. And then another one that I really liked was police were referred to as orderly daughters, yeah. which is also <laughs> very like weird and mysterious. Um, so similar to ballroom slang, Polari isn't really a distinct language of its own anymore. Um, it's not very commonly spoken, but a lot of the terms have just become common, like mainstream slang in the UK, similar to how a lot of ballroom terms have become more sort of like common queer slang or just mainstream slang in the US. Um, and Polari also drew from other languages used by marginalized folks in Britain. So a lot of the words came from Romani and Yiddish. Um, and I know Zoe wanted to talk more about Yiddish. So I think this is a great time to transition to that. I did. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, I know I've talked about this before on the podcast, but we're gonna we're gonna do it again because it's super related. So um, if anyone doesn't know, Yiddish is or mostly was past tense spoken by um, Jews in Central and Eastern Europe. Apparently, I found out today because I looked it up that it dates back to the 9th century, but it really was popularized in like 18th and 19th century. So leading up to the Holocaust, there were approximately 11 to 13 million Yiddish speakers um, out of approximately 17 million Jews worldwide. So, you know, the majority of Jewish people spoke Yiddish. Um, it was used for a lot of union organizing and other leftist propaganda so that the ruling class like wouldn't know what people were talking about. Um, and the Soviet Union like referred to it as the language of the Jewish proletariat. I looked at a lot of like really cool Soviet art today that was in Yiddish, um, which was just fun for me. Um, yeah, that sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah, it was like very cool. And I want to find a poster. But uh, however, about 85% of the Jews killed in the Holocaust were Yiddish speakers, um, which led to a lot of 
like assimilation um, regarding that post Holocaust and the language has mostly died out. Um, if you're not aware that the Holocaust and anti-Semitism had like deeply class was deeply class politics based because there were huge Jewish labor unions in Eastern Europe. Um, now you do. And you should read this book that I've recommended before called Revolutionary Yiddish Land, which is really cool and also related to this because it's like a written oral history. So all of it is based on um, interviews with like Jewish survivors um, from Eastern Europe. And it's like really one of the only places where you can like learn this radical history because it's just so not taught. Um, mm -hmm. but especially following the Holocaust in Israel, people were not allowed to speak Yiddish because it was seen as like the poor people's language and Hebrew was like the bourgeois Jewish language. Um, so by the nineties, there were only about 2 million Yiddish speakers, um, left in the world. And I'm imagining significantly less by now. Um, so my great grandparents and my grandmother spoke Yiddish, but they would use it as a way for like kids to not know what they were saying. So they didn't really pass it on. So I know like some choice words that my grandmother would use, but they like didn't really want the kids to know it. And also a lot of Jews were embarrassed by it because it was like, if you were a Yiddish speaker, you were like a poor Jew. And so there was a lot of like kind of respectability around that. Um, but yeah, I don't know. That's pretty much it. That's really interesting. Hell yeah. Um, yeah, I just wanted to talk about something that I recently learned, uh, which is that Black American Sign Language is its own language, separate to but similar to American Sign Language. Um, and this developed out of segregation and similar to American Sign Language having its own culture associated with it, um, BASL has a lot of culture and resistance associated with it as well. Um, African-American Gallaudet, which is the deaf university uh, students, are proud of the colorful nature of their culturally specific signing. Our signing is louder, more expressive, one student said. It's almost poetic. Wow. And I just thought that that was really cool. Mm. Yeah, that's really cool. I did not know that. Mm -hmm. um, so I wanted to wrap up this first half of our episode just by talking a little bit about our personal experiences with speaking different languages or dialects than people around us. Um, so one example for me, kind of similar to how you were talking about with your family and Yiddish, Zoe, um, when I was growing up, whenever the adults in the family didn't want the kids to understand what they were talking about, they would start speaking in Spanish. So a lot of my cousins and I, like people of my generation and my family, learn Spanish in school rather than being fluent and growing up speaking it. So even once we could understand like school Spanish, there would be a lot of Spanish slang and curse words that we wouldn't know. Um, so like, for example, if my aunt wanted to say like, I'm worried about her, she's having money problems, she would say the more innocuous part, I'm worried about her in English, but the part she didn't want us to understand about money problems in Spanish. Mm. Um, and I've learned more recently that this is one of the common ways for Spanglish to be used um, and very common for like other combo, like bilingual speakers as well. Um, if you're speaking around people who mostly speak English, you tend to say the more private or potentially rude parts of your conversation in Spanish. So fewer people will overhear you. And if you're speaking around people who mostly speak Spanish, you would usually do the opposite, saying the more public facing stuff in Spanish and the more potentially inappropriate stuff in English. Um, what's interesting to me about that is like, this isn't always intentional. It's like something that sort of develops naturally amongst bilingual speakers of languages like this. Um, which I think is just a really cool example of how people like mold language to their needs at the time. Yeah, no, I really relate to a lot of what you said, Julia. I have a lot of similar memories growing up speaking Mandarin. It was actually the first language that I spoke. Like I spoke it, I think basically only, basically only Mandarin for the first three or so years of my life. And I learned how to like speak, read and write English when I was in preschool. And when I was in my late teens, my mom actually told me that she and my dad actually refrained from speaking in English with me when I was really young because they were afraid that I would grow up with their accent. And I think that's a really interesting mm -hmm. observation because like everyone speaking any language has an accent depending on like where they yeah. grew up, the people and environments that influence their speech patterns. But my parents, I guess, surmised that 
um, their specific accent, having learned English in China, was maybe more stigmatized in the U.S., especially growing up in a predominantly white town, which is where I grew up. Um, but yeah, I remember like being out in public with my parents and when they didn't want the other people around us to understand what they were saying, they would transition to speaking in Mandarin with me and with each other. And like similar to what you were saying, Julia, they would like reserve the more judgmental or rude comments for Mandarin. Like we'd like be at the playground or something and they'd go like, make sure you take your turn, like in English to me. But then in Mandarin, they would say, look at that boy over there isn't letting other kids go down the slide. Don't do that. Um, I think it is like a really common bilingual or multilingual experience because like, as you said, um, Julia, it like allows you to like um, mold language to fit whatever your environment you're in. And it can also make for like a nice bonding experience, but also at the same time can be sort of like snide and judgmental. <laughs> um, also with curse words, I was just thinking about this as you were speaking, like my experience was that there were certain phrases in Mandarin that I didn't realize were curse words until I was much older. Like I always just thought they were things my parents and grandparents said mm, when they were yeah, angry. Totally. And then like I would go to Chinese school and they'd be like, you can't say that. And I'd be like, wait, why? And then they'd be like, oh, it's like a curse word. And I was like, oh, I thought that was just a thing. But I mean, I, I mean, I knew what they meant. I mean, I think over time I like figured out that some of them had like dirty meanings or whatever, but I was like, oh, yeah. weird. Also, I don't know if this is the case in Mandarin, but I feel like in Spanish, curse words just like aren't as bad. So they were like, they're not mm. as stigmatized as like in English. If you say fuck, it's like kind of a big deal and people get yeah. very offended. But like in Spanish, it's not really the case. They're more just like common words that everyone uses all the time. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. It's like a different context as well. Yeah, really no, there are definitely some milder ones that my parents would say like all the time. But then there were some <laughs> like that were like, like over time I was like oh that actually means like a pretty like crass I thing. should not say that. <laughs> I love imagining little Bianca just like running around cursing. <laughs> yeah. And being yeah. like oops I didn't know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no it was funny. Um, yeah it's also interesting because within Mandarin there are like hundreds and hundreds of different dialects and some of them are phonetically similar to Mandarin, like standardized Mandarin. So I can understand them, but then others are not at all. Like I wouldn't be able to understand it if someone spoke their certain dialects. I think there's also like a class element to it. So like when you grow up attending school and then going to college in Beijing, like my parents did, you gradually begin to speak Mandarin in a way that I feel like is more, I don't know, like textbook. I thought of it as like newscastery because all the newscasters on like Chinese TV would always speak in this mm -hmm. dialect. And it's a speaking style that my parents would use around me when I was young. And I also learned that dialect in Chinese school. But by contrast, more working class people or people who lived in like one or two smaller communities their entire lives, like my grandparents, still speak with their regional dialects. And there's some interesting like code switching that happens too. So like when my grandparents are speaking with my parents or me, I hear them using more of the standardized Mandarin dialect. But then when they're speaking with their hometown friends or to each other, they use their regional dialects. Um, and it's really funny. It's actually kind of interesting because I've heard my um, dad's side of the family is from Xi'an, which is like in like central northern China. And I've heard my dad try to use the Xi'an dialect when speaking with his like friends back home. And it sounds really like stilted and effortful for him. Like he really has to like try, even though he spent his whole childhood in Xi'an. But like, I assume it's because he like went to college in Beijing and then like, um, just being immersed in different environments made him like gradually lose the like familiarity with that dialect. So I think it just makes me think about how somebody can grow accustomed and uh, accustomed to and comfortable with certain speech patterns just by virtue of the communities that they have spent time in. Um, with regard to English, I also realized that like growing up in Pittsburgh, I absorbed certain Pittsburgh slang terms that I didn't realize weren't like more commonly understood until I was in college. Like I really thought the term gum band to refer to a rubber band was like universally. I've literally never heard that before. This is the first time I've ever heard that. Okay, gum, gum as in like from a rubber tree. <laughs> oh my gosh. I mean, I get it, but I've never heard it. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I think the New York Times accent test or whatever doesn't have that question on it because if they mm. did, that would immediately put me in Pittsburgh. <laughs> <laughs> Rochester, New York, when I took it. So I don't really know. Oh, really? Mm. Yeah. That's so close to me. I think Pittsburgh I know. is really 
similar to like because it's rust belt so yeah yeah i figured that too also like hoagie to refer to a long sandwich i think that's like the only thing i will ever refer to it as like everything else just seems (laughs) unnatural to me (laughs) i literally i need people to understand that i teared up when i read what bianca wrote because hoagie is so important to me. First <laughs> i don't off, know yeah yeah i didn't know it was also a pittsburgh thing but when i first moved away from philly like it took me longer than i'm going to admit publicly to like figure out how to order a hoagie in other places like i just didn't know how to get one <laughs> yeah and i don't then, know what else to say like in new york i guess it's like a hero i don't a really hero. know right like i knew <laughs> sub i knew sub it wasn't alternative yeah. but yeah when i moved to new york it was like a hero it took me a really long time to figure out yeah, what that yeah, was yeah. i haven't heard that one Wow. But um, last year, I, I visited my friend who's also from Philly in New Orleans, and we went to this, like, Philly bar to watch an Eagles game, and they called their sandwiches subs, <sighs> and, like, we were so, oh we God. literally, like, <laughs> we were so mad. We were like, this place is fake. This is not people <laughs> from Philly. <laughs> Oh my god. Yeah, I also on the on the topic of like English words that not everyone uses. Um I think one of my friends in college was from Boston and like he once referred to a drinking fountain as a bubbler, which like to me mm. is a weed thing and we were all just yes. like what? <laughs> like what are you talking about? A bubbler. I call yeah. it a water fountain. Yeah, yeah. same. I was That's also going to say yeah, I never, I, I yeah. like after you guys <laughs> say that like i'm questioning do i say drinking fountain or water fountain like i don't even know i have heard drinking fountain (laughs) before but i definitely say water fountain no i never say anything except water fountain but if someone said drinking fountain i would know what it is yeah Yeah. it's translatable i'm like bubbler which would be like yeah okay um yeah, okay. So for the second part of this episode, we're going to move in a little more into current debates within language, especially in leftist feminist spaces. Um, these debates about whether or not language matters to politics have actually been happening on the left for a really long time. Um, I was reading some stuff that George Orwell wrote about this. Um, he was a leftist back in the day. Um, but I think as most listeners have probably noticed, it's definitely become like a more major part of political debate in recent years. I personally think this is partly because, like we've just been talking about, historically, most oppressed people have had to create their own slang and even full-on languages because there just was no room in the dominant language or culture for them, and it was more common to create separate forms of language. But I think increasingly, slang has sort of slipped between cultures. There's a lot more mass media, globalization, like there's just a lot more interaction between different cultures and languages. And it's more common for people to have an understanding of lots of different types of slang. And along with that, the movement for more inclusive language has become more common. Um, There have been more movements for the dominant English language to include some aspects of other English dialects and for institutional language authorities to just like acknowledge that these other ways of using English exist. Um, So one example that I wanted to talk about just to kind of highlight what this can look like is the movement from using he as a gender neutral pronoun to using he or she more commonly to they becoming more of a default for when you don't know someone's gender. Um, Just to note, the history of singular they in English is very long. It actually is recorded as early as the 1300s. Um, And something I learned more recently is that the use of he or she as like a gender neutral was also pretty common up through the 1800s. But in the 1800s, there was a push by a lot of writers and grammarians to get rid of singular they and he or she. They advocated for only using he as a singular gender neutral pronoun um, because anything else would be grammatically incorrect. The sexists unfortunately won, at least at the institutional level. It started to be only considered correct to say he as a gender neutral pronoun, never they or he or she. So fast forward to the 1970s, there started to be a push from feminist writers against just using he. But again, because there was this really strong institutional bias against they from like going back to the 1800s, it just became more common to use he or she. 
Um, there has actually been some linguistic research that suggests that on the level of actual usage, like everyday people, singular they is actually very common when you're referring to someone whose gender you don't know, as in like someone forgot their coat, for example. But in terms of what's used by like universities and employers and governments, they it was not as common. And he or she became a lot more common again after the 1970s. Um, and then more recently, there's been more of a push from trans and non-binary writers to use they as a more inclusive gender neutral um, because he or she obviously only includes like two pronouns. Um, so this is a really good example to me because it's something where a lot of people in the 1970s complained about feminists not wanting to use he as gender neutral. And today people complain about trans folks wanting they to be used as a gender neutral pronoun. But in reality, the original problem mostly came from right-wing grammar activists who were trying to get rid of both they and he or she. This debate has existed forever. What's really changed is the ability of women and trans and queer people to participate meaningfully in that debate. And while I don't think we can give full credit to language changes here, a lot more people today are feeling safe and able to come out as trans and non-binary than at any other prior point in U.S. history. And I think the increasingly common and visible use of things like gender neutral they and more broadly trans inclusive language is one thing that's helped some people come out. Um, I know it has for me and particularly in communities where people may not know a lot of other trans folks, but they're just able to read and hear more about transness. Um, I think like these language changes can really help some people be more aware that being gender non-conforming is an option for their life. Yeah, I agree. And I really relate to this. Like definitely I was able to say that I like want to be referred to with they them pronouns. Like when I saw other people around me doing it, like especially after I graduated from college, like the visibility of that I think was like really important for me among other things of course I also just want to like give an anti shout out to one of my English professors and I remember in my class there were like trans people but he insisted that singular they was grammatically wrong and like him. but like he would and like he knew like I don't even know why he did this but he would give a little speech every time he brought that up he'd be like now I know times are changing and people these days now want to be referred to with they them pronouns but for this class we're going to oh use God. he or she and then like, I remember on every single one of my drafts, he would, like, you know, use his, like, fucking red pen and, like, scratch out the they and write he or she. And I'd be like, no. Like, I don't care if my grade <laughs> suffers, like, because of this. Like, I don't think, like, there's, no, there's like, no grounds for you to argue what you're arguing. So, like, no. Bianca's <laughs> professor, enemy of the pod. Really enemy of the Sworn pod. enemy. <laughs> We've made another enemy and we're fine with that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's so annoying. I really hate when people I do hate that. It. Yeah, I love the idea of an anti shout out, though. I feel like at the end of every yeah. episode, we just should like do some anti shout out. Yeah, yeah. it's just it's just, <laughs> just airing the grievances of random cis men <laughs> fucking up our lives. Yeah, he's not gonna listen to this, but like, I just need to put it on the table, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna email it. Definitely. I will email it to him. Per- tell me, email. I will send it to him personally. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god um okay so i want us now to move into some more current debates about language and terminology on the left um favorite slash least favorite leftist or feminist terms um so yeah it's it's time for us to share our hot takes y'all <laughs> okay i've been sitting on this for a pretty long time. I actually think this episode was pretty timely because I literally just tweeted about this. But I wanted to talk about the terms BIPOC and POC, specifically um, with respect to like East Asian Americans. So there are a couple things that happened recently that made me think about this. The first was that I saw this tweet that says that that said it was like misleading and rather harmful to say that an organization is BIPOC-led when the leadership is either like vast majority East Asian or entirely East Asian. And I started to think about that a lot because I definitely agree, but it like made me think about like what the term BIPOC even means and what people who use the term hope to accomplish. Because first, I, there's some ambiguity to the term itself for me. Like I've seen people say it means like black and or indigenous people of color. So like, in other words, specifically black and or indigenous people, like even if the people of color part then becomes mm-hmm. redundant. 
But then others have said it means like black, indigenous and people of color. So like, in other words, all people of color, but then with an emphasis on black and indigenous people. Then the other element is like, what does indigenous mean? Like indigenous to where? Like you could argue that like Chinese, like Han Chinese people are indigenous to China, but are you referring to that in this context? Like who knows? So then the question becomes like who is included and who is not included when you're using the term BIPOC. So then when I see like some East Asian led orgs say they're like BIPOC or POC led, I think it's like not factually false. Like if you just look at it like based on like the facts, depending on what your definition of BIPOC is, I guess. But I think in terms of like diversity and representation, which is what the terms are used to imply in this context, I think there's still a lot to be desired if the biggest swaths of people in the group or the people who hold power are all East Asian. But then it also brings up interesting questions about positionality, like particularly that of East Asians who grew up upper middle or upper class, who enjoy privilege because of like proximity to whiteness. I'm including myself here. And the question of whether like we get to claim the term BIPOC if we think it applies to us. My stance on this generally is no, because like in my mind, if we have to use the term BIPOC, like that term is specifically designed to make space for black and or indigenous people. And so if we're gonna use the term or the term POC in general to imply like diversity within a group, but then there are like no or very few black or indigenous or non-white and non-East Asian people in that group, then it's like definitely harmful and misleading to uh, use the term. But I think more broadly, I think this is kind of a hot take, but I think like by the, my stance on the term BIPOC in general is that I understand why it's used. Like it's used to lend more weight to the experiences and livelihoods of black and indigenous people. But there's like too much ambiguity to what it means as I discussed earlier. And I think as an example, my friend Jamie is like, she's like obsessed with earrings. This is random, but she like loves earrings. And she was on Instagram and this like person was doing a giveaway. And in their Instagram story, they said like, oh, it's like, uh, there's a pay what you can option for BIPOC people. And they specified they meant like black, indigenous and people of color. But like there is ambiguity there. But I think generally people are better off just stating the races and ethnicities they mean. Like, I also think that gets rid of the other problem I see with the term BIPOC, which is that it tends to like amalgamate the experiences of black and indigenous people when obviously those, there are like vast differences. Yeah, I feel like I also, to until this moment, I really just thought, or like until recently at least, I really thought it meant like the first definition that you gave, which is like, specifically black and indigenous too. people yeah but then the people of color yeah. is just there as well and it's like i definitely have seen a lot of black and indigenous organizers i follow be like why not just say black or indigenous right. that's what you mean yeah um but then if it means like all people of color it is kind of like i feel like it was intended to address problems with poc being too vague but then it's like it doesn't really address that if you're still just right all exactly people of color yeah um I think there's a similar issue around Latinx identity, and I did want to talk a little bit about the word Latinx. Um, first of all, I think people often intend to include Latinos in people of color, but a lot of Latinos are white. So like, I will see a lot of spaces that are like, you know, we want people of color, including people who are Black, Latino, and they'll list a bunch of things, but it's like, okay, so do you want, like, are you trying to include white Latinos? Because there are a lot of them, and I feel like generally... I would not think that a space for people of color is for me, but then if you're having a space for Latinos, it's like, mm -hmm. it's sort of ambiguous. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to talk briefly about the whole Latinx debate because I feel like it's been in the news and on Twitter a lot recently, and I've just seen a lot of really bad takes. Um, so just to get my own take out there, people often make this argument that the X is unpronounceable in Spanish and is therefore somehow like a fake white liberal invention mm -hmm. or something that was like created and imposed by non-Latinx white people on Latinos. Um, just to clarify, gender neutral words in Spanish have been used by Spanish speaking people for literal decades, mm -hmm. including the X. Um, the X ending was actually created by Chicano activists who were drawing from Nahuatl and other indigenous languages that use X much more commonly. So they were kind of trying to insert like an anti-colonial note into Spanish, which is originally the language of the colonizer for most people so who speak it today. Um, 
so the E ending is also a lot more common in Latin America. So a lot of people might say like amigues instead of amigos to mean friends. So like you replace the O or the A ending with an E, which is considered sort of like a neutral. Um, the issue with Latinx, if there is one to me, is actually not the X part. It's the Latino part. I think it can be a useful generalizing term. I do use it. But to be honest, similar to people of color or BIPOC, it's very broad. Most Latinos identify more by the specific country or region that their family is from. And historically, Latino as a term has some issues in that it's centered whiteness and lighter skinned Latinos. And historically, Afro-Latinos and other Black Latinos have like not been considered Latino or they've like not been made room for within that term. So it has sort of that history of like, this is a limited term in some ways. Um, also, Latino doesn't really tell you anything about a person's racialized identity, which is fine. Like we can have terms that don't do that, but then people assume that it does, which I think creates confusion um, and a problem comes in there. So for me, like if I'm going to use it, I generally say I'm a white Latinx person, which I think says something more useful about my racial identity than just mm -hmm. saying Latinx, which is just like so broad as to almost not really be useful. Um, anyway, to end this rant, X endings are good. Centering <laughs> only white Latinos is bad. And if you don't like the word Latinx, just don't use it. It's fine. But please don't talk about it if you're not Latinx. We mm -hmm. really don't need your opinion. Thank you. <laughs> Um, no, I really like that point, though, because this conversation has come up now in multiple of my classes, and it has been, like, mostly, like, what you said originally of just, like, white, like, liberal white people just, like, mm. deciding what their opinion is. Mm. Um, yeah. And I also, I think it's really interesting thinking about, like, how broad of a region it is, because I've also been thinking about that with people who refer to like the middle east or like middle eastern people and i'm like yeah, that's oh a God, huge yeah. region that is so many different kinds of people like who are you actually talking about like someone in one of my classes said something about how like oh like middle eastern people are like generally more conservative oh and i was like first no. of all no also <laughs> <Wow>. like <laughs> are you talking about like something that's based on religion or are you talking about a specific country like like, what are you referring to? But there's, like, this weird thing, I think, for, like, white people and, like, especially, like, people in the U.S. to just be, like, that whole region, it's, like, less problematic to refer to a region than, like, a specific culture, which is much worse. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. That's a good point. And, like, I think, like, we were talking about with Indigenous, too, like, that is such a broad term, even if you're talking about Indigenous folks in North America, like, right. most people identify not as just broadly indigenous there are so many groups within that so yeah yeah, yeah. no i'm all for specificity yeah um. <laughs> right oh yeah same, yeah right same with what you were saying it's like just say who you're just talking say, yeah about. right yeah <laughs> everyone would be less offended and right. more clear on what we're talking about exactly yeah something else i wanted to talk about i guess this branches off the what you were talking about earlier julia with like singular they but mm -hmm. i wanted to talk about pronoun usage in chinese so like in spoken Mandarin, the most commonly used pronouns are all pronounced the exact same way. They're pronounced ta. So in terms of like spoken Mandarin, I guess like misgendering, it like when you hear it, basically, it doesn't sound, it's, you can't really be misgendered if you use a ta pronoun, which is like nice. But the difference or the challenge comes when things are written out because like all the pronouns, even though they're pronounced the same, they're, uh, they are written differently. So similar to how you were describing earlier, Julia, the masculine form of the written pronoun is the default. So it's like used for when the gender of the mm. person is unknown. And when you're talking about a group of people with mixed genders or people, a group of people whose gender makeup is unknown. And the feminine version of that pronoun has only been around since the 1920s. And it's used only to refer to women or groups of women. And so when I was thinking about my own pronoun usage, like I like grew up using the feminine ta pronoun. But I, I think I realized I didn't want to continue to use that. And I felt better about using the masculine version, but I didn't like the whole overtones of it, like masculine is default, you know? Um, mm -hmm. I think it is still my preferred Chinese pronoun though, especially as I've seen like radical texts from China and Hong Kong and Taiwan that used like that version to refer to people with unknown genders and also non-binary people. So it's also taken on this sort of like singular they function in English. 
There's also an object form of ta that actually like, I think I've seen some people using, but in Mandarin, it's used mostly for like inanimate objects and animals. And I didn't like that for me either. Um, but as I was doing research about like pronoun use in, in Chinese, I was like, what, what other ones exist? And there's kind of been like this relatively young movement that started in Hong Kong to use like this other pronoun too for like non-binary people. And I've actually seen some like Chinese and Taiwanese people in Hong Kongers use that pronoun for themselves as well. So I think it's like really interesting to like see a language that I like grew up speaking kind of like evolving even as I'm yeah. getting older. So yeah. yeah. That's really interesting. And I, I feel similarly about like, I feel like the like masculine form of Spanish words feels like okay to refer to myself. But then I mm -hmm. do also have that tension of like, I don't like that this is just the default for everyone. Mm. But like, I personally am fine with being. Yeah, yeah. This. So it's definitely complicated. I'm just deciding how spicy I want to get. <laughs> I would like to hear your takes on comrade personally. Okay. Here's my take. Um, okay. I, I don't even know how to go about this because I didn't write anything out because I was like, I might get hate mail. No, I'm just kidding. It's fine. Um, basically, I think that like an issue I have with the term comrade is how like overused it is. And with a lot of overused words, they lose meaning. Like the basis for comrade, right, is like close people that are like close and like working towards the same cause and i don't feel that that's always true for the people mm. that have openly referred to people in the same room as comrades um <laughs> specifically i think what like really made me come to this um for some radical honesty is like when i was harassed by a man in the same organization as me and then like, of course, it was a whole thing. And like a lot of people like didn't stick up for me, didn't do anything, but then would get in front of the room at meetings and be like, hey, comrades. And I was mm. like, so offended. Like, I don't feel that you're my comrade at all. Like, how dare you? Mm. That, yeah, I just feel like it kind of gives this like over familiarity of people that I do not feel aligned with. Yeah, I, I totally feel that. I kind of feel like I use it often to refer to like, people that I organize with but don't have another relationship with so like yeah. someone where it would I don't dislike it in like, all contexts yeah but I mean also to address I, this a is like group, group meeting yeah yeah I mean this is also kind of like a self call out because like I feel like <laughs> if I am not comfortable referring to someone as a friend do I need to even refer to them as a comrade like I normally <laughs> use it when it would feel too familiar to say my friend because I don't really know them but I organized with them and I only know them in that context and it's like comrade, but then I'm like, I mean, I don't really like actually know them. So maybe we just need another word that's <sighs> like people you yeah. organize with and work with, but you maybe don't really know them. And like, maybe you don't really know if they would like have your back in that type of situation. Yeah. Right. Like I don't dislike it when used in its proper form. It's just that I think people just like use it and that's what bothers me yeah about it that like, totally makes sense yeah or whatever it's the same thing with people have like rose emojis on twitter and then like <laughs> say problematic shit and yeah. it's like get out of <laughs> it's here like, why is that in there <laughs> right like it looked cute like <laughs> yeah exactly so i just it's just kind of a general thing with just like words that are so overused to the point that their original meaning is like not really still intact and you just don't even know what people are referring to can i jump in with a word that i'm happy people are using a lot yes yes which is please. partner i think some people i know that this is maybe a hot take because i've seen people be like the straights are using partner like what are you doing <laughs> But I think it's great that normies are starting to use the word partner to refer to like someone that they're dating um, or, you know, or romantically involved in or whatever. Um, because like one of the reasons that the word partner evolved was this idea that like in some contexts and for some people, and I, I like this in general, even as somebody who's like mainly attracted to one gender um, or at least not attracted to one gender <laughs> men. Um, uh, I like that like the idea that like gender doesn't that like the gender of person you're dating shouldn't be the defining characteristic of that person I like the idea that like 
and maybe it was revealing that like when I was with a man I really preferred to call him my partner because I was like I really don't love the fact that I'm dating like a man um <laughs> maybe should have interrogated that a little bit but like whatever um I, I think it's really great that like there are words that are being commonly used that downplay the central importance that gender has often like held in, in re- like determining relationships um and like that's not to say that everybody should use um partner instead of boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife or whatever um but I think it's really cool that like that's becoming a commonly used term that even like comes up in um like heterosexual partnerships and I think that if you're straight and you're listening to this and you call your partner your partner that's just wonderful and I want to say thank you for doing that I also I'm a fan of partner I like it (laughs) but I will say it's great if you're like hey I brought a girlfriend like hell yeah congratulations you know yeah totally I feel like for me at like I've just found it's the only word that I've really been comfortable having applied to myself. Like, Mm. I wish that there were more options, but, like, I'm definitely not a joy friend. I would like to make that clear. Like, no, thank you. They friend, Um, I know, it's so weird. Oh, God, (laughs) yeah. yeah. It's also then just, like, based on the same gendered, like, Mm boyfriend-girlfriend thing. So I don't know. But, yeah, I do really like that more people are using it. Um, I wish we had more options because I know some people just don't prefer it. And it's, like... There should be an option that's not as like committed partnership. Yeah, for, like, yeah. I was gonna say I do dating, feel like it's more of like a but... serious connotation. That's yeah. very real. Um, yeah. So I guess the thing that I want to talk about is not a specific word or anything, but it's the hill that I will always die on. And we built this podcast around creating inclusive information for leftists because there was like a lot of conversations about how people felt like they would try to listen to other leftist podcasts and feel like they literally wouldn't understand what they were talking about. Um, Mm -hmm. And in leftist circles, people often feel the need to heavy air quotes, uh, speak intelligently. And the issue with this (laughs) is the idea of intelligence that people, often cis men, are trying to portray is rooted in white supremacy, patriarchy, and upper class education. And most of those men have no idea what they're talking about anyway. They just want to sound smart. But anyway, in the same way that as colonizers, traditional ecological knowledge is swept under the rug as something that isn't as quote-unquote developed as this Western or white ideology. When you try to sound a specific way in a room instead of using language that anyone could understand, who is that serving? I try really hard to make sure that the language I use is accessible to anyone, and I think as non-cis men, it's also easy to feel intimidated by men who use this inaccessible language, but to them I say, fuck you, get it together, stop hiding behind incoherent and inaccessible language. Yeah. So true. Yeah, also, yeah, so many cis men who do that are just, like, honestly kind of dumb. Like, I, f- I cannot count the amount of times I, like, thought a man was smart at first, and then I was like, oh, no, he's just, like, <laughs> loud and, like, says a lot of, like, things with big words that are saying nothing. Totally. That's a good point. You know, yeah, I feel like people can, can hide behind confusing language. Yeah. You hate to see it. Long live the accessible language pod here on Season of the Bitch. <laughs> Hell yeah. You know, you can tell us how much you love us um, by rating and reviewing and subscribing on iTunes as well as Spotify. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Season of the Bee. You can send us an email at seasonofthebee at gmail.com. Uh, You can go to our website, seasonofthebee.com, and, you know, you could could send us your dollars. Um, It's very important to us. We have an online community that is so good and a reading group that is ever-evolving and a little community that you could just slide right into by sliding us some dollars. As of recording this, it's Giving Tuesday, so hopefully the giving vibes have continued wow, to when yeah. this is released. Um, for your end of year giving, please consider Season of the Bid. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah.
Hell yeah. Okay, love you all. Love you. Love you. Bitch.